Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It's good to be here. Glad to be in the midst of this series of messages. We are walking through the book of Acts together, but not verse by verse. And actually, we're going to kind of speed through the rest of the book of Acts. We spent quite a bit of time on the first two chapters. And then over the next um, couple of three weeks, we're going to finish up this book together. We're going to look at it from a big picture kind of moment. And today we're going to talk about a pretty specific kind of issue that sometimes arises when God begins to use people and when God begins to move in his church. We're reading through the book of Acts, the entire book of Acts together as a church. And um, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks or you've just missed the opportunity, we have a few more of the scripture notebooks that are out on the Welcome Center desk. And this is the entire book of Acts, but on the opposite side of the scripture is a place to take notes. And we're reading that together throughout um, this month and a half that we're walking through on Sunday morning. The book of Acts, we're reading it together as a church. And so uh, we've got that schedule, I think, Justin, that we can put up there that shows the dates and what we're reading. And so this is, we started in August, on August 23rd. Uh, if you're keeping up, then September 13th through September 19th, uh, we don't quiz you when you walk in the door each week to ask you where you are. Um, and all God's people said, Thank you. Right. That's right. Um, but we are following through that. I've had people during the week. I got asked at a football game the other night what we're reading right now. I've got asked in the grocery store what verses, chapters we're reading. And so I'm excited about that. That's exciting to hear that. And so uh, we're going to be Acts chapter 17 through 21 and we'll finish up in a couple of weeks. And so I hope you're following along with us. If you haven't been, you can read the ver- chapters that we're reading this week and then jump back and read some of the others or you can just Start in chapter one and read. It's really a, an easy read. It's fun. It's basically breaks down to about a chapter a day or a little less than that. And so we're doing that over these next few weeks. One of Luke's purposes in writing the book of Acts is that we can tell the story of the remarkable growth of the church in the years after Jesus left the earth and sent his spirit to be with us. In fact, if you're reading along with us, then you know that there are multiple times when it talks about how the church grew. Acts chapter 2, 41 says, So those who received the word were baptized, and they added about 3,000 souls in Jerusalem that day. Acts two forty seven, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4, 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000 in Jerusalem that had accepted Christ. Acts 5, 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. Acts 9, 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. Acts 13, 49, and the word of the Lord spread throughout all the region of Pisidia. Acts 16, 5, so the churches were strengthened in their faith and they increased in numbers daily in Galatia. And Acts 19, 20, so the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily in Ephesus. Now I assume since Luke is emphasizing this so much and he's telling us these things that it's important for us to recognize the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. He's telling us about the triumphs of the gospel. 
He's telling us about what was happening, about the arrows in the hands of God being distributed among the known world at that time. It's the ongoing work explained in Acts 1-1 that he says, and this is what Jesus continued to do through the Spirit given in Acts chapter 2. And yet when we read this, and those of you that have been reading along with us, know that it's not a perfect church even from the very beginning. It was an amazing movement of God. Unbelievable. Never matched in history what happens in those first few years of the church when you think of how exponentially it grew. But it wasn't pure. We must recognize that there were issues that they had to overcome. There were problems that were there with it. And when you do the kind of evangelism, you're going to catch lots of people, to use the phrase Jesus did, of becoming fishers of men. But you're also going to bring in some things that are not. A few years ago, when I was a camp pastor with Cross Point Sports Camp, we had the first week of camp in Williams Baptist College over in Arkansas, and we had a small camp, only had about 70 kids. We had about 20 staff, so that was like really good staff camper, you know, ratio. When we got through it the first week, they had told us midweek that we didn't have enough to make camp the second week. And so they were sending us on a mission trip, which they had never done before. As a team from Lifeway, we were going to go do Cross Point Sports Camp for a community of Grand Isle, Louisiana. Anybody ever been to Grand Isle, Louisiana? Okay. It is south of New Orleans. Now, you know where New Orleans is, right? You think, how is it south of New Orleans? There's only one way to be south of New Orleans, and that is it's Grand Isle in the middle of the Gulf. We went down there and didn't know anything about what we were doing. We had a church that said they would put us up. We stayed in people's homes. Every home there was elevated. We stayed in people's homes. We slept in their houses. And every night, the people of Grand Isle, Louisiana, would feed us supper. Now, can you imagine what kind of food was fed to us from Grand Isle, Louisiana? We had Cajun everything. It's my first real introduction. I'd had some knockoff versions in West Tennessee. It's my first real introduction to crawfish etouffee and jambalaya and gumbo. And they would go out and catch shrimp that day and bring it back and cook it that night. It's good. And they said to us one day, hey, would y'all like to go shrimping? Now, let me tell you my experience with shrimping at that moment. Forrest Gump. Anybody ever seen that movie? That's all my experience with shrimping had been was Forrest Gump. Bubba Gump shrimp, I knew, you know, go out and the boat happened. And so I was like, sure, let's go shrimping. So we get on a boat and we go shrimping. And the biggest part of shrimping is not catching the shrimp. The biggest part of shrimping is removing the debris that gets caught in the nets with the shrimp. Because shrimp etouffee is really good. Some of the other stuff that gets in the nets is not what you want. And when you are casting a net like the early church was casting, there's going to be some debris in the nets. Some issues. Ananias and Sapphira, some of you read that a couple of weeks ago, Acts chapter 5. 
Simon the Magician and the Samaritan movement in Acts chapter 8. John Mark, fearful, retreating in the missionary band in Acts chapter 13 and 15. Apollos, who seemed to be doctrinally confused in Acts chapter 18. And professing Christians in Ephesus who for some reason and for some time concealed their black magic from the rest. So sometimes when you do that, you're going to catch some things that you have to be aware and you have to use discernment to pick out. And sometimes the problems with the church come from that debris and other times it comes from blind spots within. We know what blind spots are in our cars, right? There are those things over our shoulders that we can't quite see good enough. And and there are very few things in life that are scarier than thinking that you're on the interstate and about to get over. And as you start to pull over, you realize there was something in your blind spot. Now, some of you have these new cars that give you 360 degree views and warn you if you're going over there and all that. I don't. All right. And so when you begin to swerve over and you realize it, you kind of get back in line like I didn't realize that was there. You just kind of get back in shape, right? We have blind spots in our lives, too. I read an article this week from a a psychologist who said that one of the things they've identified in the human brain is that the area of the human brain that allows us to self-evaluate, that allows us to analyze our own selves, shuts off primarily when we are in emotional distress or in argument, especially with those whom we love. That it doesn't show hardly any impulse or lighting up. So that means that when we are talking with, let's just hypothetically say, you're having a discussion with your spouse that may have arisen in level. That it's very easy in those moments to determine the things that your spouse may be saying, or the attitude they may be portraying that is not what you would like. And it's virtually impossible to analyze that in your own self. Now, we've all experienced that, right? Jesus talked about that. We look and see the speck in our brother's eye when there's a log in our own. And so what we see here is sometimes the issues that crop up in a church happen because of blind spots. And today we're going to talk about one of those moments in Acts chapter 6. And I want us to see a couple of things from this passage. I want to see what was at stake, what the issues were, the, the issues that were there, the solution and the result. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says this. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of bread or food is the understanding. Verse 2. The twelve summoned their whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. 
In this particular moment, the church is growing rapidly. Things are happening all around. It tells us that at the very beginning of chapter 6. And I want us to see this because I want us to see what is at stake in this decision. It would be easy, and it is a foundational passage for churches like ours. We'll talk about the role of deacons here in a few moments. But it's a foundational passage. Otherwise, it'd be easy to think about this as kind of just a a story that didn't have much impact. But chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that there is momentum that is happening in the church, that they are continually increasing in number. And then when you get to chapter 7, it says, So the word of God spread, the numbers continued to increase, and a large group of priests became obedient. So here's what is implied by the bracketing of these verses between those two statements. One is, the church was on the move, and the movement of God was seeing people come to faith in Christ. People were being saved. The church was growing. Lives were being changed. The message of the gospel was being proclaimed throughout the earth. And at the end of it, it is continuing to do that. It's growing even stronger. And even some of those that were the harshest critics, the priests, are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what it means there is that to bracket those on the end tells us that what happens in the middle is of vital importance of what was happening in verse 1 to continue happening in verse 7. This internal blind spot of what the apostles had going on in their church was vitally important to take care of in the right way. Otherwise, there was this potential for the growth, for the movement For the momentum to stop. What were the issues? Well, I want you to notice one thing real quickly before we even dive into the issues. It says in those days that the disciples are increasing in number. There arose a complaint. Now, some versions of scripture will use a different word there. Some translations will use a different word there, which captures what's really going on here a little bit more. It says there arose a murmur. You know what murmurs are? They're consistent complaints that are continually repeated. Now, here's what I want to just think for a minute. I want you, those of you that are grew up in church, been a part of church, I want you to think for a moment about where in Scripture you hear a lot about murmuring and complaining. The Israelites, I heard that from somewhere over in this area. Remember in the Old Testament when the Israelites were saved by God in the Exodus, they begin their process to the Holy Land, and as they begin their journey to the Holy Land, what happens? They begin to complain, murmur, right? Eventually, they murmur and complain to the point they murmur about not having good food. God gives them food. And then he says, well, we don't like the food you get. We'd like to have some meat. And God says, I'll give them meat until it's running out of their noses. And then they complain about the meat that they have. And then they complain about the route that they're taking. And they complain about the leadership that they have. And they complain about what's happening and how God saved them and all of that. And they murmur and complain all the time. Eventually, it gets to the point because of actions that they take and a lack of trust they have because of their murmuring and complaining about the people that God has already told them that he is going to deliver them from without them having to do anything, they murmur and complain about the people and God finally says, okay, that's enough, you're not going to the promised land. And what we get this sense of in the Old Testament is it wasn't violent major sin that derailed the Israelite people after the Passover. It was the 
murmuring and complaining and dissatisfaction that led them to actions that made them get off track. And so what I want you to see here is I think this is an intentional callback to the church is moving. The new Israel in the New Testament is the church. Now, again, I didn't say our church is the new Israel. The church, capital C, is the new people of God. That is the group that God has established on this earth in order to proclaim his glory to all of those that live on this earth. And so the church is beginning to move forward. They have been delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ instead of a Passover lamb. They have the Jesus, the Messiah, our Passover lamb that has delivered them from the bondage of their sin. They are moving towards the promised land of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. And in the midst of that, there arose among them murmuring. Do you get the picture there? It's not just, hey, we got a little issue here. Like there is a serious thing that needs to be addressed. So what were the two big issues here? And the first one is an understanding that there was a conflict between the distribution of food, really, but it had developed between the Hellenist Jews and the Hebraic Jews. So what does that mean? It's obvious here that there's food distribution issues, but... What are Hellenistic Jews and what are Hebraic Jews? So you have to think of it this way. Israel at this time is an occupied territory of the Roman government. And when the Roman government came in, one of the interesting things that had happened was that the Roman government came in on the back of the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire had put their language over an entire area of the world. And so that's why when you read the original New Testament, it's not written in Latin originally. It's written in Greek. Koine Greek, which means common Greek. And so that language had kind of developed all over. But in Jerusalem particularly, but in Israel in general, some of the Jewish people had refused to give in to speaking the language of the Greek kingdom and had remained as full-fledged Jewish followers of all laws and traditions and language. On the other hand, there were some Jews in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, that had fully adopted the Greek culture, the Greek language, the Greek things that were around, and said they could faithfully live out their commitment to God while still embracing the Greek culture. Those on that side were the Hellenistic Jews. Those who remained faithful to the Hebrew only were Hebraic Jews. And we hear that, maybe not a big deal. To them, it was a big deal. Almost as big as, say, I don't know, Two political parties that believe things that are diametrically opposed to each other. In fact, if you just want to think of it in these terms, the Hebraic Jews would have been very similar to conservative fundamentalists. And the Hellenistic views would have been seen as liberal and progressive. I'm not saying equate them exactly. I'm just saying in our modern terms to think of it that way. And so, as the distribution of food begins to happen, 
the Hellenistic Jews, rightly or wrongly, those that had taken on Greek culture, those that had been a part of that, begin to feel like they are being slighted in the food distribution. And the murmuring, the complaining, rises to the point that there is an issue. It was an issue also because of the ones that were involved. Widows in the first century, as we've talked about before, were different and in a more dire situation than widows even in our day. Widows in the first century were not people that had worked jobs or had college degrees or had careers or 401ks or life insurance or disability. They often married young. They often married young to husbands that were older. Husbands were the head of the house. They were the legal authority. The female in that time frame did not have any. They were the property owners, the males were, and they took care of their wives. And most of us know, we know this to be a fact in almost every culture, that women generally outlive men in years. And if you marry a man that is 10 years older than you, and you generally outlive them anyways, you're going to spend a portion of your life in that culture, first century, 10, 15, 20 years possibly, when you are widowed. And it was up to the people around them. Their sons, if they had sons, would step up and take care of their mom. If they did not have sons to take care of their mom, you would hope a close community figure, someone who has around them, a cousin or an uncle or someone would take care of her, a brother-in-law. But in many cases, there was no one that could or would step up to take care of her. And in this particular case, the widows are being taken care of by the church. Now, just to give you kind of an insight on a place you can see this in Scripture about how this was a concern for people, we, we talked about this a couple of years ago when I did the seven words from the cross. One of Jesus' last words on the cross were specifically dealing with this issue. Right? Do you remember when Jesus is on the cross, Mary is there at the foot of the cross? What disciple is there as well? John, the beloved. You remember that moment where Jesus looks at him and her and he says, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. If you remember a couple of years, we talked about the fact that many people think, many scholars think, that Jesus was making sure his mother was taken care of because she had risked her relationship with her family in her loyalty to Jesus. We know from Scripture that none of his brothers were on board with him until after his resurrection. James, his brother, would eventually write one of the books of the New Testament. But it says he became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection. And so in that moment, Jesus is taking care of his mom because he knew somebody would have to. And so the church is taking care of these widows. And they're helping through food distribution, clothing distribution, whatever it might be. And at some point, the Hellenistic Jews feel like they're not being taken care of as well. And this murmuring is an issue that could develop into something that would derail the momentum of the church. And here's the thing we know from Scripture and what we know that the apostles knew, and that is Jesus loved both groups equally. Amen? Conservative, liberal, progressive, fundamentalist, 
Jesus loves them all equally. I know we know that. But sometimes when we think about it in practice, you're like, yeah. But maybe my group a little bit more. Jesus is about fair treatment here. And the issue is brought to the apostles and says, we need you to do something about this. And the apostles looked at them and said, absolutely, ladies, let me go get you some food and we'll take care of it right now. Is that what happens? Is that what happens? No. What's interesting is there's this imp- it's implied in this text that the Hellenistic Jews were blaming the apostles for not treating them as well as the other Jewish women. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. Do you think, knowing as we do what Scripture teaches us about them and their time with Jesus, that the apostles were intentionally favoring one group over another? No. I don't think intentionally they were at all. Could there have been some? Absolutely. Could they have known them better because they grew up in that kind of society or they were friends with them? Perhaps. But there's this reality that they are assuming that the apostles are intentionally prioritizing one over another. And one of the most dangerous things that can happen within churches is when there's an issue that is real is to assume motives for those that are in a place to correct it. So the first issue that we see in this passage is the conflict between the Hellenist and the Hebrew Jews. The second one is that there is a chance for distraction from the mission. This is in chapter 6, verse 2. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Now, I know that you, many of you in this room have heard that line so much in your life, you just go, yeah, that's what the apostles said. But I want you to imagine how that would have landed initially. Or, let's modernize that for a moment. A group of ladies come to my office and say, here is an issue that we see, it's a real issue, and we need you to address it. And I say, I'll address it on Sunday morning. And I get up on Sunday morning and I say, I don't have time to deal with this. That's not my job. Somebody else is going to have to do it. Now, I know it's church. Everybody wants to be nice. How would that be received? Y'all, I thought it would be great, Pastor. We'd love it. That's not what would happen, right? And yet... That's what the disciples say, right? The apostles, not the disciples. The disciples are the entire group of people. The apostles are the twelve. They say, listen, we see this as an issue. They're going to address the issue. We see this as an issue. It's not an issue we can take care of. Because our focus has to be on the ministry of the word. And we get further down and the prayer that we are called to. There are two issues at play here. One is... There is a real issue with the distribution of food that needs to be taken care of. Secondly, there is the possibility of getting involved into things that could distract from the ultimate mission of the church. The apostles could have solved this issue in a short-sighted way that would hinder future ministry. 
And anything that threatens the ministry of the word and prayer is a distraction to the ultimate calling. And the apostles said, for them, this was not their calling. They didn't say it's not an issue. They didn't say it needed to be taken care of. They just said it's not for us right now. Right? That's what the scripture says. Y'all with me? Some of you are like, now what's coming next? But that's what the scripture says, right? We must remember that as a church, we are part of the movement of God, arrows in the hands of God that is to be penetrating the darkness around us, shot out for his glory and for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the name of God to be made high, for Jesus Christ to be exalted and for people's lives to be changed. And yes, there are issues that arise within the church that have to be taken care of. But any issue that begins to pull from the ultimate mission of the church and drag down what is happening in our calling to the nations, to our communities, to those around us, to the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom are distractions that we must figure out how to deal with without impacting the mission of God. And so they come up with a solution. Verse three, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty, but we devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they said that sounds great. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. What do we call these seven group, this group of seven, what do we call them? We call them the first what? Deacons, right? It's the foundation for our deacon ministry here at First Baptist Goodlettsville. It's the foundation for deacon ministries all across this world and has been for almost 2,000 years is this calling of the deacons and other places in Scripture where their names are mentioned. And so he says, we have this issue. The apostle says, we can't let it be a distraction to the overall mission of the church. And so we need some people to do the care for these widows that needs to be done. The care for this group of people that feels like they are being neglected or overlooked. We need somebody to help take care of these people. And so they say to the congregation, to the church, you pick out some people that you would trust and that you would say, those are the people that we want. Helping to make sure this is done well. Here's what's interesting about all seven of those names. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've been a study about this. Maybe you've talked about this or been told this in a sermon. When you look at almost, well, not almost. When you look at those seven names, they are all Greek names. What group of people felt slighted? The Greek Hellenistic Jews. How did they help solve the problem? They elected Greek Hellenistic leaders. People whose names at least suggest strongly that they were Hellenistic Jews. And they give them leadership to help take care of this. 
Deacons originally were servant leaders. Now, they're called deacons because it is an office and it's also descriptive. The word used for them in the original language means servant. We also see in this passage that they are leaders in the church. They are servant leaders. They are serving the people, but they are doing it in an administrative way in order to make sure that everyone is taken care of well. And so as we think about that role in the church, when we think about the deacon role in the church, deacons are servant leaders for us here at First Baptist. They are ones that listen to and help to manage and think through and serve those that are in need, those that have issues, problems that come up, complaints and murmurings. There are people that help to lead in a godly fashion to make sure the church continues to move forward. They are people that help take care of pastoral care needs, that help to take care of people in illness and sickness and places where they may be experiencing one of the big moments of life, of of birth or marriage or children or even families dealing with death. But they're also leaders in thinking about how do we keep focused on the main task. Now, we know from this list of people that these lists of people have some that are strong in evangelism, that are strong in taking the gospel to the nations. Stephen will become the first known martyr in the next couple of chapters. Philip will be the first short-term missionary that we see that meets the man, the Ethiopian eunuch. So we know these are not just guys that are just there to do some things and not really proclaim the gospel. They are leading in how they are describing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around them. Deacons are a vital aspect of churches that are moving with God. Now, it just happens that as I was planning out this series of messages and something that we've been trying to plan now for two years, literally, is happening tonight, which is that we are ordaining five new deacons here at First Baptist. Chris Baga, Jared Holmes, Chris Scheide, Daniel Shaw, and Brent White. And we're going to do that tonight at 6 o'clock right here, and we'd love for every one of you to be here all um, ordained men in this congregation are invited to an ordination council at five o'clock upstairs. That back, I'm pointing up there. There's nothing up there but a roof. Back there, our youth area, the attic where deacons meet. At five o'clock, there's a deacon ordination council. But in here, we will set aside five men just like they did. They stood before them, the apostles. The apostles prayed and laid hands on them. So tonight we will do the laying on of hands ceremony. We had planned on doing this last year, and then this thing COVID hit, and there wasn't a whole lot of worry about laying on of hands, and there's still some of that, and we're taking precautions. But we'd love for you to be here as a church family to just stand with them in the midst of that. Like I said, we've been trying to plan that ordination for two years. I did, this was not the series that I planned on preaching at this time. And God just ordained where those two things came together. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Also coming in the month of October is our deacon election. And I'm just going to be real honest with you here, church. The participation of the church body in the naming of deacons over the last few years has been subpar. The number of, the number of nominations that we get in... The ones that are properly given in are way below what a church of our size should be doing. And we, in the midst of it, God has blessed us with amazing and great deacons. But we need you to be a part. The whole congregation, it says here, was a part of naming those guys. And you'll see in the next couple of weeks, the ballots start to come out where you take them and you... 
You fill them out. It's the first step in the process. You as a congregation get to do that. And what I want you to see here is these men doing their job and the way they were called to do it is vital to the momentum of the church continuing on. And if we are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, the arrows in the hands of God to our community and our state and our world, we are going to need a group of deacons that are serving and leading us along the way. Just to give you an idea of what happened here and how the solution came about, they listened to the complaint. They remained focused on the calling of their lives. They delegated it to people that could take care of it, and they trusted them to do what they were called to do. And what was the result? The result comes in verse 7. First of all, we know that the widows were cared for. But verse 7 shows us that the ministry of the word and prayer was not forsaken. Verse 7 says, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. It just keeps building. This was not the first challenge to the church, nor the last. In just the next chapter, A man named Saul is breathing threats against them, and a man is killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. But it shows in the midst of this how there's nothing too big or too small for us not to pay attention to when we're moving towards what God has called us to do, as long as we remain focused on the big picture of what we're doing. Let's pray together. Holy Father, I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy that allows us to mess up time and time again. Lord, I'm thankful for the fact that you forgive us even in those things that we don't know that we need to be forgiven for because of the blind spot in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful example of how a potential derailing issue is solved in the early church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to identify those blind spots within our church. If you'd help us to, to, to put people in place that can fix those issues, address those issues. And Lord, that we would remain focused on the ministry of the word and the prayer. And that we'll do it for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.